can turn to Genesis 34. If you're on the outside wall, there's a, ba- a basket under your chair. It has little visitor cards in it. If you're a guest with us today, we would love for you to fill out one of those cards. I'll send you an email, tell you thanks for coming. It's a good way for us just to keep a record of who was here. And if there's any information you want, that's the easiest way to exchange it. We've got a welcome center in the back on your way out. You can just stop in there and give that card. I'll be in there. I'd love to say hello. Uh, two announcements. Uh, we have our, we're starting a third service tonight, 5 o'clock, 5 to 7. We'll be doing that every um, Sunday moving forward. It will have the same elements that we have on Sunday morning. It will just feel different because there will be a smaller group of folks. And if that's something that you would enjoy being a part of, I'd love for you all to come and check it out. It will be during youth, so your students will be in youth ministry. Penny and Christina will be doing children's ministry during that time, and we'll be in here um, with the adults. So, again, I'd love to see you all. If you have any questions, you can talk to me or Kim about that. Also wanted to thank some folks who helped yesterday. We had our Park Street Carnival. Park Street Elementary School is our partner in education, and we did this back-to-school deal there yesterday. This is the second year that we've done it. Went really well. Tons of kids and their parents came out. Michael Mosley grilled 500 hot dogs. They were all, nobody got sick. That was a plus. Snow cones, jumpy things, soccer, all kinds of face painting. All of that stuff is really good. I thanks for everyone who came to help. We had a good number of students helping as well, which was wonderful. I think I saw Lisa Gordon. Is she in here? Lisa Gordon, thank you. She helped pull the whole thing together with Penny Harrison, our children's pastor. And I don't know if Jesse and Nicole Weber are in here, but they helped a lot on the front end um, with organizing that. So, again, thank you all for all of you who came and served. Many of you donated supplies. We're giving all of those to the counselors and they'll distribute them to the kids as they see fit. Uh, it's just it's the best way to go. So thanks for all of you that have given supplies as well. All right, Genesis 34. So if I thought about it, I'd have done this on Labor Day when you weren't here. But that's not the way that it that's not the way it laid out. So we've been looking at Jacob through the lens of personal transformation. We said Jacob's this picture of what it looks like to be conformed to the image of Jesus. He was chosen by God for a specific task. And then God goes about the work of making Jacob ready for that task. He picks him before he's ready. Everything we see about Jacob up to last week is pretty shady. Doesn't look like the kind of guy anybody want to be friends with. And then something happened last week. We looked. He wrestles with God, and that's the turning point in his life. He has a physical wrestling match with God. You can go back and read it. And in the midst of that, God dislocates his hip. He touches Jacob's hip, dislocates it. It's got to be incredibly painful. But what it does is it brings Jacob to a place of dependence. At that point, he's literally clinging to God because it's all he can do in this wrestling match. And we said that's where God wants all of us to get to. What does God want from us? There, Jesse and Nicole. Y'all stand. Wait. I'm digressing. Thank y'all for helping so much yesterday. Back to Jacob. So he wants to get him to a place. He wants to get each of us to a place of surrender where we all recognize our need for him, that song that we just sang, that we're dependent upon him. That was what we said yesterday, and God will go to pretty extreme lengths to get us there. He dislocated a guy's hip. He's willing to go to pretty extreme lengths to get us to that point, because we said if God doesn't have all of you, then he doesn't have any of you. And the second thing we asked was, well, what do you want from God? When Jacob's clinging to God, he says, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. There's something I want. And I know you can give it to me, and I'm not letting go until you do. For us, sometimes that sounds petulant or childish or selfish, 
But God invites that level of relationship with us. As our Father, He wants to know, what do you want? That's why we do birthdays. We want to know what you want. What do you want God to give you? And so that was a question that we asked last week as well. Do you actually know your heart well enough to say, this is what I want God to do for me? And are you willing to ask Him and to be persistent in your asking and even to wrestle with Him until you get an answer, yes or no? So today we're going to look at chapter 34. And to be honest, No heroes in this chapter at all. Very difficult to even find any redemptive value in the chapter. So I'm sure you're glad you came. If you're a guest, I'm sorry. We'll just do the best that we can, kind of muddling through this. So verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, excuse me, the daughter Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this woman or get me this girl as my wife. So set up. Jacob has been called back home by God to the promised land. He sets up camp in a place called Shechem. Shechem is run by a guy named Hamor and his son is Shechem. So there's two Shechems, a place and a prince. Jacob has a daughter named Dinah. She is the Um, She is Leah's daughter. If you remember, Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. Rachel he loved. Leah was, he got conned into marrying her. So not a lot of affection there. And as we read through the story, it becomes apparent that he really didn't care a whole lot about Dinah. He doesn't seem to care a whole lot about uh, Leah's children. Maybe just neglect Jacob as we read about him, played favorites, and it looks like she was not. Dinah was not one of his favorites. So what Leah was doing, she's feeling neglected, and she's going out to Shechem, where she should not have been, and she's spending time with the women there. At that point, she's a teenager. It would have been a huge no-no for her to be out unescorted. There should have been a male relative with her for multiple reasons, one of which would have been for her own safety and protection. She doesn't have that. As we read the story, it appears this is not the first time Shechem and Dinah meet. I think that, I don't, I'm not saying they have a relationship but he has been around her enough to have developed what appear to be sincere feelings for her. And then in this moment, he rapes her, crime, assault, all of those things. And then he says to his dad, I want her to be my wife. Now, once he rapes her, she is not really eligible for marriage any longer. They can get married, but no one else is really going to marry her. So in a sense, he's, he's forced the hand of his dad and of Jacob by what he's done. If he, it seems like he truly did want to marry her, and this would have been a power play to make that happen. Verse 5, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields. As soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Very interesting. Everything we've ever seen from Jacob. He's a man of action. He's bold. He knows what he wants. He goes after it. He's incredibly strong. And he does nothing, totally passive, when he hears what happened to his daughter. It's very unlike him to respond this way. And then when his sons, her brothers and half-brothers, come in, they react in a way that's much more appropriate. They're ticked off. They're furious. They're angry. They're humiliated. All of those things working together. Jacob, again, for whatever reason, appears very docile in the situation. But Hamor says to them, 
My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us, give us your daughters, and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I'm to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. So, all marriages are negotiated between the males. And so Shechem and his dad are negotiating with Jacob and and his sons, with Dinah's brothers and dad, to try to come to an agreement about marriage. And what Shechem says is this isn't just about these two individuals. Remember we said last week, Jacob is loaded. He is incredibly wealthy. And so these guys are seeing dollar signs. Let's get our two families together. We can form an alliance, y'all and us. You've already moved near our city. And so let's let your folks marry our folks and our folks marry your folks and we can become trading partners. Let's move in that direction. As you read through the Old Testament, one of the biggest dangers for the Israelites is intermarrying with foreign, with foreigners. Not an issue for us. Don't think nationally. Like if you're thinking, God, oh, it sounds really racist. I want, you think, I want you to think in terms of God is trying to form a people. And he needs them to be homogenous. He's looking for purity in this people. He set them apart. said, I'm going to pick Abraham and I'm going to make a nation. And the point of this nation is to bless every other nation. But if this nation gets diluted, then I've got nothing to bless anyone else with. So intermarriage was a huge issue, big no-no, because that always brought in foreign gods, which would always lead the Israelites astray. If you read through the Old Testament, it happens time after time after time. As soon as somebody marries someone foreign, that man or that woman adopts their gods, and it's a train wreck for everyone until God can kind of bring everything back around. So Intermarriage equals assimilation equals the end of what God is trying to do through this people. And so Jacob knows that. That's why he went, to, he went back home to find a wife. Remember his brother Esau married foreigners, and it says the Bible says it brought grief and trouble to his parents that he did that. So he knows that, and the brothers know that. But both Shechem and Hamor are desperate. Hey, we want to, let's form this alliance. And Shechem is saying, I love her. I want her. Tell me what you want. We said... Um, groom's families give presents to the bride's family. Just tell me what you want for, and I'll, I'll give it to you, whatever the gift is. They never acknowledge what he's done to her. There's no acknowledgement of the rape. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. So like father, like son, Jacob is a deceiver, and so are his kids. They said to him, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. So remember, God, the sign of the covenant with Abraham was circumcision of all males. When you're eight days old, all males get circumcised. And Jacob's sons say, we can't do this with y'all unless you take this sign as well. All of y'all have to be circumcised. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man was the most honored of all his father's family, so he's the prince. He lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of the city. That's where all decisions were made to speak to the men of the city. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters. They can marry ours. 
But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate appeared, agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male in the city was circumcised. So those guys may be the two best salesmen in the history of the world. Immediately. Every guy in the city is like, all right. Let's do this. They're seeing dollar signs again. There's no indication that the men in the city have any idea what Shechem has done to Dinah. They don't know the backstory. They don't know that there's this, that he raped her. They don't, they don't know any of that. All they know is, hey, this guy's loaded, and it appears like they want to form an alliance with us, and all we have to do is short-term pain, long-term benefit for us. And so they all get circumcised. Three days later, While all of the men were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob's came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking his plunder, everything in the houses. So the whole thing was a setup. No intention of ever allowing any type of marriage. Hebrew Jewish tradition says the third day is when you hurt the most, and that's when they went. And the, the men were unable to defend themselves, and two of uh, Dinah's full-blooded brothers, not her half-brothers, her full-blooded brothers, Simeon and Levi, wipe out everybody, every man in the city. Then the rest of the brothers come in, in pillage and plunder and loot. So Shechem is gone. It's destroyed because of what the brothers have done. Somebody stopped me afterwards and said, what, like, what would have been a proportionate response? They were totally out of line with what they did. Culturally, they could have killed Shechem for what he did. Like that, that would have been a, cult, a culturally acceptable thing. Would have been to kill him, but to wipe out the whole village way over the top in terms of their response. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in the land, who are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should we have treated our sister like a prostitute? Only thing we hear from Jacob the whole time. So this is the dad whose daughter was raped. The only thing we hear from him appears to be really concerned about his own safety. What y'all did boys, is y'all, could have, y'all might have created a scenario where some of these other towns are going to get together and they're going to attack us and we're not going to be able to stand up to it. He doesn't seem to have any issue with what happened with Dinah, doesn't seem to have any motivation to comfort her, to try to avenge her in any way. He doesn't even seem to have an issue with what the boys did morally or ethically. It's just the consequences or the potential consequences of the action. And the way the sons reply is somebody had to do something. You weren't. Jacob's passivity created this vacuum, and the boys stepped into it, and their vengeance went haywire, and they were driven to do some pretty heinous things. Now, Dinah was being held, and so they rescue her. That may, maybe that helps a little bit with what was going on. They said they took her from Shechem's house, so he still had her, so it wasn't just about avenging her. It was also about rescuing her, but you still, the response is completely disproportionate Uh, to what happened. Again, culturally, what could they have done? They could have killed him 
for what he did, but there's, no, there's nothing that says, yeah, you can wipe out a whole town because of what one person did, no matter how heinous that one thing was. So, again, you're glad you're here this morning listening to that. If any of you want to tell the story around dinner tonight, I can give you my notes and you can feel free to rehash this. Why is it in the Bible? Out of everything that could be in there, why this? Other things happened that aren't in the Bible, so how come this gets put in in chapter 34? Um, One thing I would, I think, moving forward, we'll see Joseph really takes favored status. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is 11 of 12, and God really works through Joseph. We'll, We'll look at him in a couple of weeks. And so one of the questions is why? Why would God pick 11 out of 12? What about the first 10? And this disqualifies the first ten. You'll see it that we'll see when we get to the end of Genesis. Jacob is still ticked at Simeon and Levi on his deathbed. He never does anything, but he curses them on his deathbed. He's still upset about what they did. Joseph was young, and so most likely he didn't participate in this at all. When we pick up with his life, he's only 17. This happened before that, so most likely he had nothing to do with what was going on. That's not the only reason he was chosen by God. But it does speak to why these other guys may have gotten passed over and why God chose to work through Joseph. Again, there's some other things going on, but I would say that's at least one of them, is that the the rest of the brothers disqualified themselves because of their actions. For us, when I think about this chapter, it's one of the few chapters in the Bible, some would say the only one, where it's not just that God's name is not mentioned. There are other places in the Bible where God's name's not mentioned. The book of Esther never... God's name's not mentioned at all in the whole book. But if you read it, his fingerprints are all over everything that happens in the book. This chapter, again, some would say the only, I would say one of a handful, where God's name, it's not just that God's name is not mentioned, there's no evidence at all that God is considered at all. There's no evidence. If I just typed up Genesis 34 and handed it to you, and you read it, and you didn't know it was in the Bible, you wouldn't draw any, you wouldn't say, oh yeah, I could see God in the midst of this. Oh, I see how God worked in this circumstance. I can see how people were being led by God or how he was glorified. There's nothing at all reflective of God's harder character in Genesis 34. Again, there are no heroes. And there's, it's difficult for me to find anything redemptive in chapter 34. And as I read that, it makes me think about me and wonder if you followed me around and you typed up my day and you handed it to somebody and they didn't know that I was a pastor, would they say, is there any evidence of God in his life, day to day, on Tuesday? Is there evidence in his life of God's character, of God's leading, of God's directing, of God's guidance? Does he embody any of God's heart in terms of how he lives his life? It's not a guilt thing, but it makes me wonder. And I I wonder how many of us live, nobody's raping and pillaging and plundering and looting, and none of you are going to do that. That's not the issue. The issue for me, reading Genesis 34, is, How many of us unintentionally settle for a life apart from God? But that's not what's on the table for us. If you said yes to following Jesus, then God comes and lives in your heart. You can get your mind around that idea. By the Holy Spirit, the God who created everything that you've seen, the God who, according to the Bible, created everything in the universe, the God who, according to the Bible, upholds everything, sustains everything, the God through whom all things are made and for whom all things are made, the God who is the, was and is and is to come, the first and last, that God, that massive being, when you say yes to following Jesus, says, I'm going to live there in your heart. 
It's an amazing truth if you can begin to get your mind around it. But many of us don't live in light of that. It's just it's easy on Wednesday to lose sight of the fact that according to 2 Corinthians 4, you carry around in your heart the life of Jesus in his death, that the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives within you. And there's no place that you go that he's not. One of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. His last words to his disciples in Matthew 28 are, I'm never going to leave you. I'm always going to be with you, is what he says. In John, how does that happen? If Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, how is he always with me? I think it's easy for us to get disconnected. I think it happened in the Old Testament as well. It's easy when you're not, we can't see God. And when we get in the midst of our day, it's difficult to experience him. Maybe when you're in here on Sunday, it's easy. Maybe it's easier. Maybe you can feel God in some ways. But on Thursday, it's not so easy. And it's easy to get pulled apart. Or easy to live unaware of the nearness of the Lord in your life. What Jesus says is, I'm going to leave and I'm going to send someone, a helper, an advocate, a comforter. It's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to live within you. Again, that's this incredible truth that God takes up residence within us when we say yes to Jesus. So that has nothing to do with whether you're an artist or an engineer or an introvert or an extrovert or a man or a woman or whether you think you're a first-round draft pick or scum of the earth. It doesn't matter. None of those things matter. What matters is when you say yes to following Jesus, the Holy Spirit is given to you, according to Ephesians, as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And so within your heart, you're carrying around, again, the very presence of God. I don't know if you live fully aware of that. I don't. That's not something that I live fully aware of. I don't fall into Genesis 34. I don't get that far. But it's easy for me to move in that direction and to lose sight of the fact, again, on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, that I literally am a carrier of the presence of God. If you're not a Christian, that's, like, that's the offer. I don't know what, that's the offer. Say yes. Revelations 3, I'm knocking on the door. You open the door, I'm going to come in. And I'm going to live with you. All you have to do is ask. And again, the God who made you, the God of the universe, will come and take up residence within your heart. That doesn't work here intellectually, how does that happen? But experientially, it's true. It conforms to reality. That's what God says he will do if you'll ask. So a couple of things looking at these guys. Dinah, she was a searcher. She had legitimate needs. She was lonely. She was neglected. She was looking for relationship. It's something we were all created for. Everybody's created for community. Dinah had none. The men in her life didn't fulfill their responsibilities, and so she goes wandering looking for community. It's a legitimate need. In her searching, she was vulnerable. Getting raped was 0% her fault, 100% on Shechem. And if she had never left home, it never would have happened. Because she was desperate for, to fulfill this need in her heart, she was searching for something. Again, it's a legitimate need. She went wandering into the wrong place, and she got into all kinds of trouble because of it. And the same thing happens for us. Some of you this morning, you're searching. You're looking for something. You're looking for belonging. You're looking for relationship. It's not a matter of whether you're married or single. It's an issue of intimacy. Some of the loneliest people I know are in lifeless marriages. And then in that searching, that desire for connection, you begin to look outside of your marriage. And it's devastating, the consequences of that. It's a legitimate need. Intimacy. 
But if, you, if your first look is out instead of up, you're going to have an issue with where that desire, where that searching takes you. Some people are searching for belonging. Some people are searching for purpose. I want to know why I'm here and what's the point and is there more to life than this and is all I'm going to do make money and raise kids and die? Is that it? My cosmic accident. Is there more to life than this? Some people are looking for identity. Who am I? Am I who y'all say I am? Or is there some, is somebody else have a stamp on me? Jesus at his baptism, the father says to him, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. That's an identity statement. Is that my primary source of identity or is it something else? Everybody wants to know who they are. They want to know why they are. They want to know where they're going. They want to know who they belong to. All of those are universal questions. Those are deep needs that God puts within us, and it's legitimate for you to have those filled. So if you're searching this morning, my encouragement, God who lives within you, the Holy Spirit, ask him to fill you. That's what he does. Those places that are empty in you, God, I need you to fill this void in my life. Again, my first look is up. I want you to define who I am before I look out. I want you to adopt me into your family, and I want to belong with you first before I look to belong to others. I'm going to let you define my purpose before I go out trying to figure out what that is. My first look is up, or else the searching, I'm vulnerable to finding an answer in a bad place. It's not going to be like Dinah. That's not going to happen. But the consequences can be devastating when you're searching if you're not asking the Holy Spirit, this God who lives within you, to fill you first. It's going to lead you into some bad spots. And you're wandering trying to find the answers that are legitimate. You're going to wind up in a bad spot. What do we see with Jacob? He's listless, completely apathetic, doesn't seem to have any desire to do anything, totally outside of everything we've seen of him in terms of his personality. That's where some of you are. You're listless. You're in the doldrums. The sail's up, but there's no wind. You're just sitting in the middle of the lake, treading water, however you want to say that. You're bored, if that's an easier way of putting it. If you were to look back over the last month or two months, you'd go, if I'd stayed in bed, it'd have been just the same. There's nothing, nothing's happening here. You may be incredibly busy, but you're not fruitful. When you're listless, you're vulnerable to these stretches of fruitlessness. And over time, that's no good. For those of us who are Christians, if you're a believer, if you're connected to Jesus, one of the results of that is fruitfulness. If you're not producing fruit over time, there's an issue. Something that you need to look at. And so it could very well be for you. Maybe it's apathy. For most of you, it's not apathy. It's busyness. You're busy, and so you're not... There's a lack of engagement with what God wants to do through you. And so if that's you, my encouragement, again, the Holy Spirit's the answer. Ignite me. Empower me. I'm lazy. I have to pray this prayer all the time. I don't chew gum because it's too much work. I'm serious. And I would encourage you, suck on a mint. It's a lot easier. Same benefit, less work. It's true. I have to pray this prayer all the time. God, you've got to stir something in me. You've got to light a fire in me because that is not me. I'm not talking about emotion. I'm just talking about some sense of purpose and direction. I can lay on the couch with the best of them. And so, God, I need you 
to ignite something in me. I pray that prayer all the time. And you may need to pray it as well. If you would say, I'm just bored. I can't tell what I was talking to somebody the other day. They said, all I do is spin plates. That's it. I'm just spinning plates. If you feel like that's your life, ask him, God, you've got to ignite something in me. You've got to set my heart on fire for something bigger than me. There's got to be more going on than this. And my tendency is to live less than. And so I need you to stir something in me. That's what he does, Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit, when he comes upon you, he will empower you. And then you'll go out and do things. You'll be my witnesses. I didn't say this earlier. I was thinking about that idea of being filled. That's a regular prayer as well. The, the tense of the verb, you don't care. It's present tense, which means continual action, which means you're constantly asking God to fill you. It's not a one-time thing. So some of you are searching. Some of you are listless. Some of you may be like the brothers and you're driven. That's what you see with them. This mix of love for their sister and humiliation because this happened to her and they were her brothers and they should have done something about it and anger at what happened. It drives them to this completely disproportionate response to what happened to her. They're not seeing straight. They're just seeing red and they're just plowing ahead. We can be driven people as well. Some of you are driven by emotion. Some of you are driven by fear. It's the boss of you. It determines what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Some of you are driven by anger. Not all the time, but when you get fired up, you've got zero self-control. And it, you, you're a wrecking ball when you get angry. You're, being, you're driven by anger. Some people are driven by despair. That seems odd because despair kind of locks people up. But that, it's the boss of some of you. You give in to despair and you just kind of wallow. Some of us are driven by circumstances. It's that to-do list that when you wake up, you already see. It's already got lots of things on it. And it's the boss of you. It determines what you're going to do and whether or not you've had a good day, how many check marks you can put. Some of us are driven by other people, particularly their expectations. Whether that's an employer, whether that's a parent, whether it's a spouse, for some of us, the person, the expectations we're trying to meet, the person's long since dead. They're not even in our life anymore. But we still hear that chirping, trying to live up, trying to live up. And it drives you. What Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do is lead you. Cows are driven, sheep are led. You're not a cow. You're not. You're a sheep. He leads from the front. He doesn't drive you from behind. Psalm 23 says he wants to lead you to green pastures and quiet waters and paths of righteousness for his namesake. For many of us, that's, that's been a long time since we've experienced any of that. Our tongues are hanging out. We feel like we're on a treadmill all the time. We're bad tired, not good tired. We're not good tired because we've given or served or loved or worked in a good, healthy way. We're bad tired because we're constantly feeling like there's more to do, there's more to do, there's more to do, there's more to do. We're running as hard as we can, and we can't keep up. You're, again, that idea of spinning plates, but for you there's more plates than, you can, than you've got hands. If that's you, you need to ask, God, by your spirit, I need you to lead me. Jesus says his yoke is easy. That means it fits you well, and his burden is light. If you're not living life that way, it doesn't mean you're never going to have a bad day. It doesn't mean you're never going to be tired. But if over the course of a month, Let's say, let's do a week. Over the course of a week, if you're wiped out all the time, 
if you're always harried, if you're running from one thing to the next, you're probably not being led. You're probably being driven. And there's got to be this point of saying, I'm not doing that anymore. God, I need your help. I need you to lead me because I'm being driven by fear. I need you to lead me because I'm being driven by the expectations of my company. I need you to lead me because I'm being driven by this deal that I've got to get done. or Whatever those things are, I need you to lead me because right now I'm not being led at all. So that's my encouragement to you from Genesis 34. I want you to think. First, I want you to get, if you can, I want you to get the fact that the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives within you. And it's always available to you. If you're searching, ask him to fill you first. Ask him to fill that void, that gap. And then look out to see where he would lead you. If you're listless, ask him bored. Ask him to empower you, to ignite something in your heart. If you're driven by something external to you, ask him to lead you. It's a completely different way of life. You'll wind up being more productive and more peaceful at the same time. If you can imagine putting those things together. There will be more fruit in your life and less frustration when you're led versus driven. Let's pray. If you're on the ministry teams, you can come forward. Two groups. That first would be just that. If you feel less listless or searching or driven. We want to pray with you. You may be someone who's never, the whole concept of God living within your heart, you don't get that. It's not something you're familiar with or comfortable with. We'd love to pray with you about that. What does it look like to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you on a regular basis, to lead you on a regular basis, and to empower you on a regular basis? I hadn't planned on doing this, but at nine it struck me pretty hard, and so I want to share this also. I believe there's just a handful, maybe less, I'm thinking particularly women who've been sexually assaulted. And it's a open wound for you. It happened in the past, but you've got this mix of anger and shame and fear surrounding it. And it's affecting your relationships with others, particularly with your husband. We want to pray for you. I was thinking you may feel like Dinah, who's going, where's my dad? Jacob, what are you doing? And you may have felt similar towards God. God, where were you? How in the world could you let something like this happen? Why didn't you rescue me? And we want to take some time this morning and pray. I know if you're feeling shame, the last thing you want to do is stand up and come forward. I want to strongly encourage you, if, there's, if you can, to do that. Let us pray with you that God would deliver you from the shame and from the anger and from the pain and that God would heal you and make, your, make you whole and that God would speak to you about where he was in the midst of that. You don't have to walk around carrying that any longer. So God, those are, my, those are the groups and Lord, I pray for those who fall under those umbrellas. God, I pray particularly for those who've been assaulted sexually in their past. God, I pray that they would leave here with their chin up and their heart whole because of the work that you can do even quickly here this morning. There's no experts here. All we're going to say is we're going to try to put you in front of the Lord and let him do what he does. 
And God, I pray for those of us who are searching or listless, who are driven. God, would you show us the freedom and the joy and the peace that comes from living under the guidance of your spirit on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand up and please come forward as you will and Bo will dismiss us uh, after this song.